And let us now start. Namaste to all of you. We continue our satsang of this Thursday by commenting ideas from the yoga of the disciple, from the Tibetan yoga, a very sharp appraisal, a very discriminative, a very clear evaluation of the do's and don'ts of discipleship, of spiritual quest. And I have stopped last time at the beginning of the paragraph, the chapter number 11, in which the demonstrating precisely this sharpness of spirit, the Tibetans have called it the ten resemblances wherein one may err. Therefore, there is in this chapter a tendency of exposing falseness in spirituality because some things may look alike but actually at the deeper level they are not at all the same thing. And the first of the ten resemblances which I already commented and I start from there to go to the next one was that desire may be mistaken for faith or devotion. That means in spirituality there would be people who are motivated by desire. That desire may be a very evident gross desire, like some people want fame, some people, and that's why they want to become very important in a hierarchy, like somebody goes into the Christian hierarchy, but all their thought is to become cardinal or pope in the church, then they can show like they have lots of devotion, lots of faith, lots of commitment to, the, to their spirituality, to their lineage, but actually their original desire was fame, their desire was to reach to some position of power. So, of course, that is quite obvious, and then there are desires which are not that obvious, and there are desires which people sometimes have unconsciously, and then this is sometimes the function of the guru. The guru sees that the disciple has a desire for, let's say, fame, and then the guru asks the disciple, like out of the blue, after five years of having cooperated, after five years in which the teacher has guided the disciple, then suddenly the guru asks the disciple to go in an insignificant place, to spend some time, like to go on some deadline, to take a decision, to take a turn, which obviously never will bring any glory or fame or name, because the guru can have either the clairvoyant perception or if not at least an intuitive suspicion that the disciple actually secretly, even without he himself knowing it sometimes, has an agenda, has some ulterior motives. That is why these things are sometimes seen by the community. That's why in famous lineages of spirituality, 
there are all sorts of rod road blocks there are systems if any one of you would evolve becoming a member of the thai buddhist community or of the tibetan buddhist lineages or of the christian roman catholic monastic monkhood system or of some ashram system in india or something there are a lot of weird rules when there is no living guru to keep an eye on that then there are 150 rules which generally try to make sure that the spiritual practitioner is hit from all sides to verify that maybe maybe you actually have that secret desire because 300 years ago we did have something who had that desire and ever since we learned the lesson and now we are taking precaution precautions we are very cautious about that of course it's obvious that whenever there is an institution with rules the human being is so skillful that some are still sneaking through the system and you find people filled up with ambition and desires who are going through spiritual systems and they sneak in sometimes even disciples even gurus can be cheated such as there are famous stories about gurus masters who were even assassinated murdered by disciples who did not reach spiritual proeminence and who were caught red-handed at some point and then they simply chose that the biggest obstacle was their spiritual teacher because he could see through them very clearly and then they had to that was an obstacle to them that's why this story with a desire being mistaken for faith or devotion is a very deep rabbit hole and generally the protection to it are those 120 rules which are very tedious in some religions you have to be humble you have to do this you have to lie down on the floor you have to listen to the criticism of the whole community you have to do that you have to do that you have to ask a blessing for whatever you do from your superiors like you never take initiatives by yourself and this and that there are a lot of rules which selfish people find very tedious and very irritating and very provocative and like you are holding me back but actually their meaning is precaution which has been established historically because people have erred before due to that unfortunately there is the exaggeration in the other side because of course this desire which can be mistaken for the real thing unfortunately because it some people succeeded with that and they created more mayhem than good things so many people who became religious authorities popes or whatever and their mind was just bent on personal fame success power and other things and then when they showed their real face so many tragedies have happened in this world and that's why you find the people who rise completely under it and they say no no if you have faith and devotion actually you might have a hidden desire and therefore you shouldn't have even faith and devotion which is absurd this is one of the new age pitfalls in which some people think that the spiritual desire 
which is called aspiration, the pure spiritual aspiration, also has to be shunned because that may be hiding some perverted, some sneaky, some secret desire. The truth is, all, all, as always, somewhere in the middle. There is a genuine spiritual aspiration which is okay and which is more than okay. It is indispensable and at the same time there is a desire which can be mistaken for faith or devotion. The second such resemblance, false resemblance, which is fake into to the core. Two, attachment may be mistaken for benevolence and compassion. So this says there are people who look like they are benevolent and compassionate. And the story says actually those people are attached. Attached to what? Attached to persons, attached to circumstances, attached to their own status, attached to their own image. There are people who simply come to believe that they have a certain mission and then somebody can come and simply say, you have no mission, you are nobody. It's very difficult to accept this that after you have been a worm and you stood up and now you found like a compass inside you, somebody tells you actually this compass which you apparently found inside yourself is not a compass. It's just you are crazy and hallucinating and are having delusions of some sort and actually you don't have any mission, you don't have anything and now because of that mission you are attached to this mental representation that you think that you are some saint, you think you are... Have, you have to save somebody or whatever and it can be a very painful mission like you can really build up in your mind the image that you are a martyr that you are sacrificing yourself for the mankind and to have no mission is much worse than having a painful mission there are today personal development gurus who make people very careful on this that many many people project terribly and people who reach by the age of 35 and 40 and they did not succeed anything great in life they start projecting either they hope that their children are going to be some indigo children who will change the world that's one way of projecting and the children are not indigo they are autistic handicapped diabetic whatever they are but the parents keep hoping and that's a projection what I didn't do my children will do and then others they start creating a sort of a dramatic tragic heroic history in which if I didn't do anything at least I'm going to sink like the Titanic with the music singing with the band playing and it's going to be the greatest shipwreck the world has ever heard like some people develop a sort of a masochistic self-destructive thing in which at least if I did not become famous, if I did not reach enlightenment, if I did not make a successful house full of kids or something, then I'm going to go down with a bang, with a big bang. So the world will remember my death, my suffering, my this and that. There are today gurus in self-development, as I say, who say that many people's cancers, many people's suffering, many people's tragic events in life 
are produced actually by a subconscious projection, by a sort of a subconscious frustration in which you can't really accept the idea that you are going to get to be 70 and you haven't done anything worth mentioning in this life. While on the contrary, Jesus says it very clearly, he who shall lose his life for me shall win it. Like, okay, you haven't done anything, that's precisely it. There is this desire, this attachment that I'm here to do something and if I didn't do something, I'm not good, I'm not useful. But Jesus says, go in a monastery, go in a desert, go in a cave and when you will be 60, if anybody incidentally meets you, will tell you what? You are a parasite. You have just consumed the foods, earth for nothing. What have you done? Oh, you stayed there and prayed. Maybe you should have gone into a mental hospital. Maybe you are severely delusional. Maybe what have you done? Yeah, you had some visions. You think those visions didn't help anybody. And maybe you are schizophrenic or autistic or something. And your visions are worth nothing. No, and that it's, there exists a sort in, the, in many people's spiritual life. There exists this sort of facing the void, facing the emptiness inside you. It's like spirituality. You can simply say, live a life of spirituality and then say, after all, it's all nothing. I have done nothing. And then there appears a despair. There is, appears a depression. You know, it's like, I don't know, maybe some people do something. Maybe life is tragic anyway and nobody does anything. Like the people who are really pessimistic and think that life is nothing and nobody can ever achieve anything and people live in a big illusion and that's why people start inventing apocalyptic scenarios there will be the end of the world there will be a comet hitting the earth there will be a global earthquake all these scenarios of the end of the world abound ever since the world because many people that's their way of compensating for this feeling of emptiness any, any one of you will practice spirituality for 20, 30 years, for a lifetime, you will see it appearing. Even people like Ramakrishna and Milarepa, they witness this thing, that ultimately something in you can be very skeptical and say, yeah, yeah, people think you are a great spiritual master. You are nothing. You haven't done anything. There is nothing. What if the whole thing is nothing? And there is really no way of proving the existence of the transcendence. Remember, if Ramakrishna or even Jesus himself, they would have had any way to prove the existence of the transcendence, we would live in a different world. But they didn't. All the proofs, the so-called proofs, such as the miracles of Jesus or the paranormal powers of Milarepa or something, they are completely oblique and indirect. They don't prove anything. Any logician, any person steeped in logics and rationalism can demonstrate that. That's why atheism is alive and well and thriving. Because nothing can be proven conclusively. Ultimately, as I said in other uh, satsangs, even in this season, which you can find online, Ultimately, even Krishna says, spirituality can be the product of madness. We can very easily say that all the spiritual people have been suffering from a rare disease which afflicts one in a thousand, 0.1% of the world population, 
suffers from a bizarre psychosis in which people go spiritual and they live in a, some sort of raving dream which doesn't prove anything and can't prove anything. Like many people would say, oh, but look at the existence of Milarepa. That's because you suffer from the same disease with him. That's why you resonate so much with Milarepa. But for people who are skeptical, Milarepa is a total fiasco. It doesn't mean anything. And that's why Milarepa is not quoted in the United Nations as being some benefactor of humanity or some landmark in the history of humanity. Because scientifically and rationally, all the things which are transcendent and spiritual, they cannot be manifested in the manifestation. Yes, some people would say, but Jesus could walk on water. Sure, there are people who can walk on fire and they are assholes. Even if you develop a paranormal parapsychological ability, it doesn't demonstrate that there is God and there is. You can say, because I walk on water, please believe me that there is God. I make this for you. And the parapsychologist can shred you into pieces and say the fact that you learn to develop anti-gravitation is a very interesting skill and I hope the whole humanity can learn that skill from you, but doesn't demonstrate anything about the existence of God. Levitation cannot be brought as argument to the existence of God because logically those two have got nothing to do with each other. And that's why I'm simply saying that in the spiritual life it is inevitable. Most of you don't realize it because you haven't gone through it and maybe most of you haven't been for a long time into it. There appears a so-called dark night of the soul. There appears a moment where every effort which you have made simply looks useless empty and all your life looks like a total fiasco it's like you've lost everything and you've wasted your time and ultimately you cannot prove anything even to yourself your mind which is on the other side of the barricade says what 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 can you prove what that you can levitate that doesn't prove anything that proves that there is anti-gravitation and science hasn't discovered it yet what does that prove that doesn't prove because you say, oh, but God gives me grace and sometimes I lift in the air. It's not a proof of God at all. If you go to and inside your mind, you can see. That is why every human being goes through this. And that's why, unfortunately, the human beings develop very often attachment. People are attached. Chogyam Trungpa wrote a whole book which he was called cutting through spiritual materialism, where he was saying people in spirituality develop attachment, desires, and there is a sort of spiritual materialism. They pretend, no, I'm not interested in the money, I'm not interested in clothes, I'm not interested in this and that. But then they say, I know minimum, I, I know at least 5,000 mantras. The accumulation of mantras is just like some people accumulate money a spiritual material. Yeah, but you know, just in case, if ever, I could make a ritual with Tripura Sundari. And what if you don't know how to make a ritual with Tripura Sundari? Saint Mark of Ethiopia couldn't perform rituals with Tripura Sundari, and still he was enlightened. And therefore, there exists, as Chogyam Trungpa has pointed very well, with the same Tibetan discrimination, with uh, this razor-sharp discrimination, that there exists a spiritual materialism. Exactly as materialism is in the world, some people in spirituality are materialistic. And they want to be in charge, they want power, they want to be recognized for how much knowledge they have, they want to be recognized for their 
power, healing abilities, whatever it is, while all these are just hoarding spiritual goods. You are not hoarding money, you are not hoarding houses, you are not accumulating uh, social position, but you are accumulating spiritual things and it can be seen with people chasing initiations, wanting mantras, wanting books, wanting texts, wanting this and that, so that they can brag in front of the mirror and say, I'm pretty good, I know a lot of things, <laughs> I didn't waste my time in spirituality, I have learned and learned and accumulated and accumulated. And all this, you drop it, you dump it, when you die, there is nothing. And then there is a moment where this thing appears, and that's why some people make a bitter choice. Some people are attached, and their attachment looks very much like benevolence and compassion. There are people who choose to be benevolent and compassionate to somebody who serves them. The most general is your country. I have benevolence and compassion and patriotism, but your country is just a pack of wolves. It's, this is a solidarity of every wolf to his pack of wolves, because your pack of wolves gives you power, gives you peers, gives you protection, gives you that. You know? And then some people have compassion and benevolence towards some of their peers. Very few people have compassion and benevolence towards their enemies. People have compassion and benevolence towards the villagers. Oh, we have to be compassionate towards the villagers from the island. But then in the morning at 6 o'clock I go with a bowl and I beg food from the villagers. If the villagers wouldn't be there, or if they would be bankrupt, or if they would be sick, I wouldn't get my food. So it's my interest to be benevolent and compassionate to my community, because my community provides for me. It is good for me to be benevolent and compassionate to my mother, because she cooks food for me and she does my laundry. Like, I'm always having an ulterior motive, and those ulterior motives are very hard to follow sometimes. That is why the Tibetans have observed this painfully. Some people are playing this note of benevolence and compassion, but actually it's attachment. And if ever, if you reach in that position, and if ever you want just for the heck of it, just impishly like this, you want to say, let's make a little test, a little cruel test, like I can see through this situation really good. Let's see if in this situation we can introduce a weird condition, a weird clause here. And then the whole thing goes through the roof. Everybody explodes because actually you have hit a very sensitive point. Because there, there was attachment, there was not benevolence and compassion. Chogyam Trungpa was taking great benefit because although he was a reckless man and drinking and doing all sorts of other things, he was the 11th Trungpa Tulku and he had a fame. He was carried by the institution of being a Tulku Lama and so on. And after he read the book Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, a journalist caught him and he said, how come that you say that some people accumulate spiritual materialism and so on, and you are all the time bragging with your lineage? Because many people make this. The people come to me and they say, Swami Vekananda, what is your lineage? Oh, you don't have a clear lineage. Ah, you know, like lineage makes the people. So people today, they don't care. You know, they, there are so many forms of yoga. Uh, what is your lineage? 
Oh, my guru was Iyengar, and Iyengar's guru was Krishnamacharya. Somebody can say, yeah, but both of them were just two peasants. None of them was an enlightened person. They were just common bourgeois Indian citizens. That's not a lineage, really. Then it explodes. Then it explodes in your face because you are daring to touch some very sensitive issues where people are coming up with, a, what was the lineage of Ramana Maharishi? There was no lineage. What was the lineage of Swami Shivananda? There was really no lineage and the list could continue. What was the lineage even of Ramakrishna? Okay, he had two gurus, but even that was a bit of a thin ice to walk on. So what I'm trying to say here, getting back to the example, a very smart American journalist comes to Chogyam Trungpa and he says, if you are detached and if you tell to people to detach from everything and not to be attached, why don't you detach yourself from your own lineage? Why don't you stop bragging about your Tibetan ascension line and so on? At which Chogyam Trungpa was bound to answer and he said, I'm detached from everything except my lineage. Like, and then the, the, then the journalist said, well, then you are not detached. You are preaching detachment, but you are not detached because there is something which keeps you in the spotlight. There is something which keeps you in the limelight and that one you don't really want to give away and so on. So this is a, to be meditated. In many situations you look at it that attachment may be mistaken for benevolence and compassion. It is sometimes people practice it. You see it in religion, people being so benevolent and so merciful. You see it in not only the Christian religion but others especially in Asia, where people are quite manipuristic in the various versions of Buddhism and so on, there are smiles. Smiles, smiles, smiles everywhere. And I remember my teacher in shamanism when I was living in Thailand already, and he told me, Swami, you have gone to Thailand and they call it the land of smiles. But he said, I hope you know that the smiles are not real. It's called the land of smiles, but nobody means it because that's the Asian typology. You smile and at the same time you do whatever you want. Is the smiles are not coming from the heart. They are a benevolence and a friendliness, which is a mask and which serves very much everybody. And even, you know, if, if you as a Farang, you go through Bangkok or through the island and you don't smile, there are local people who come to you and they push the corners of your mouth. They ask you, why don't you smile? No, like you are frowning. When you are frowning here in this community, in this part of the world, you are perceived like a rude barbarian and like a menace. You are not supposed to go on the street making an ugly grimace on your face. You are supposed to be serene, although it's a mask and everybody knows it, but it's considered to be either very primitive to show your real feelings or really threatening for the people. And that's why, to make the long story short, remember that although some people live in a beautiful dream, remember that unfortunately, attachment may be mistaken for benevolence and compassion. There are many, many organizations and people that look like being very charitable, and it's all a mask. And there is an attachment, which means there are some ulterior motives to it. Three, the third is a very yogic one. And it says, cessation of thought processes 
may be mistaken for the quiescence of infinite mind, which is the true goal. Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra says, Yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind. It's the freezing of the movements of the mind. And as I have explained in the commentaries to the Yoga Sutra years ago, they are or they will be available to everyone. The, this expression that yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind, it doesn't mean that you stop your brain and you become an imbecile. It doesn't mean that you are actually knocking yourself out with a baseball bat and your mind stops or that you are incapable of thinking. Because then yoga would be like Alzheimer's, you know, let's just damage our brains big time, then we'll have yoga because we are like, and we can't think anymore. That's not what yoga is. Yoga is not aiming to imbecility and to the incapacity to think. Yoga is producing that stopping of the mind by putting the mind into an overdrive condition in which the mind opens to the infinite. And because the infinite does not have place in the brain, the brain goes into a paradoxical condition where it takes as much as it can and then there is more than it can. So that the mind is exactly like a computer that gets overloaded. It is like a mailbox that gets overloaded with incoming mail and it's like paralyzed by the traffic or something like this. So it doesn't really stop, it's full and then it stays, it stays in that plenitude. But the Tibetan yogis have said sometimes there are people whose mind really slows down, not because of spirituality, but because the mind goes dull. And therefore, cessation of thought processes may be mistaken for the quiescence of infinite mind, which is the true goal. This is the tragedy of people who take stupefiants, stupefying drugs, drugs that put you into a stupor. And people go like knocked out and then they think they have reached samadhi because their mind is relatively immovable. But for example, Swami Shivananda, when asked about this, he said, yes, the Babas from India smoke hash and ganj. That creates a stupor of the mind. It's not meditation. It's a look-alike which can delude. That's why most yogis say, sure, you can take opium, you can take morphine, you can take heroin, and it gives you a state of peace which looks like an ecstasy. That's just because the freezing of the mind. You have zapped your mind and you are putting it into a state, a stupor. That's why they are even called in chemistry stupefying drugs, stupefiants, because they create a stupor. But stupor, this, this state of mental stupor, is not the enlightenment. It is not the quiescence of infinite mind. When the yogi gets in touch with the infinite mind at the level of ajna, and from there, of course, there is the springboard to the crown chakra, there is enlightenment produced via ajna chakra and enlightenment which goes directly in sahasrara. Both ajna chakra and the crown chakra produce both of them levels of enlightenment. Of course, the higher supreme ones on the crown chakra. But even Ajna Chakra is an entrance gate used by the Tibetan and Indian yogis a lot during 
the last thousands of years of spiritual practice and history, and the quiescence of the infinite mind. The infinite mind produces first an expansion, like you sometimes feel here in Agama when you work on Ajna Chakra and you feel this incredible vast mind. And in that incredible vast mind, there slowly, slowly appears a peace. But that peace is a humming peace. It's a dynamic peace. Although there is a peace, there is a lucidity, there is a sharpness, there is a cosmic activity, there is an expansion, which the Kashmirian Shaivas call Urmi, is a kind of, they say it's like a tornado inside. There is a humming energy. It's not a stupor like things like your neurons have died and you are knocked out or frozen or paralyzed. Unfortunately, these two can be mistaken if somebody doesn't know the exact shades of it. And that's why there are people who fall in stupor. There are people who go into coma-like states. Swami Shivananda calls it Jada Samadhi, unconscious states of Samadhi, which he says clearly those are not giving any spiritual benefit eventually. And thus people do whatever they do and they go in stupefied states of mind and then they claim, I've been very deep, this must be some sort of Samadhi, I'm reaching really someplace spiritual. But the, the goal, the real goal, the true goal is the quiescence of the infinite mind, which means an expansion at a level where one is in touch with the ocean of intelligence, with the cosmic mind, and that cosmic mind is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, active, always, present, alive, and therefore the quiescence of it is like an ocean. Like you look at the sea and you say the ocean was so quiet today, and yet the ocean being quiet has in it life, it has in it, it contains in it the future storms, the future waves, it's all of it part of that quiet and mind. There is an essential level where one tastes the essence of the mind in meditation and one feel, feels so gigantic and so peaceful, this omnipresent mind, and then there are look-alike or feel-alike states which are just states of stupor. That's why Tibetan yoga says, look at your practice. Cessation of thought processes may be mistaken for the quiescence of infinite mind, which is the true goal. Special attention is drawn here on the use of stupefying substances and drugs in which people drink themselves to coma or take some drugs which put them half asleep or knock them out, and people think that there is some great breakthrough in it. But Swami Shivananda says clearly, it's tamas guna, it's darkness, it's inertia, there is no vibrant reality, there is not expansion of the mind there. Thus, some people, especially when you don't have a teacher to give you the proper feedback, some people say, oh, don't tell me, I have reached something very special. And then 30 years later, it will be demonstrated that that something very special was of no consequence spiritually, because it was actually just some cessation 
of thought processes. You did something and your mind switched down. Maybe not 100%, but it switched down 95%. And you've gone into a stupor and you think that the stupor is some spiritual high. And, uh, and then a yoga teacher will tell you, get up, take a cold shower, you are not at all on the right path. That is not the path which leads to that condition. The fourth resemblance, sense perceptions or phenomena may be mistaken for revelations or glimpses of the reality. That the world is filled up with this, that people respond to their own wishful thinking. They have some manifestations. If you really suppress yourself, suppress yourself, put yourself in the corner, you don't eat, you don't sleep in the night, you do this, you apply some God know what technology, realistic or not, and suddenly in your mind there pops up some paranormal perception, some revelation, something. And the Tibetans say, make sure it is not just a bouncing back of some subtle or twisted perception of the senses or phenomena. Like you can have some phenomena because you are delirious. You have a high fever and then in that fever you have some delirium and then you take that delirium for granted and you think you have, you have been visited by Krishna and now you have to do something. It's delirium. If your guru would be there, if you would have a guru who would be versed in this, he would pour a cold bucket of water over your head and say, get humble. No, make some prostrations and go. Be humble. There's nothing. You've seen nothing. There's nothing. Chill out. It's very difficult. People, there are some people, especially people that have a strong faith, as we discussed in a previous discussion, people of great faith and little intelligence, which are predisposed to fanaticism, that's what they do all the time. As soon as they have some pop-up thing in their head, it's Jesus, it's Krishna, it's God, it's Shiva, it's something. And actually when you study it better, just some distorted perception of the reality. Like experiments have been done in psychology and people who are blindfolded or sensory deprived, people who go into the samadhi tank, into sensory deprivation installations or units, people who are asleep, people who have been hypnotized, people who are in a coma or in a medical form of delirium or something, people that have fainted, and other categories, they have all of, be, all of them been subjected to different things which had absolutely no spiritual, no spiritual reason, cause, and they, some of them believed in it so much. Like you give to somebody in a situation an injection with magnesium, and they start seeing fire inside and I don't know what. Or the elementary experience, which any one of you can try. Somebody is falling asleep, and as they are falling asleep, their hand is hanging out somewhere like this. And then you take a lighter or a match, and you start creating heat under their hand without burning them. Of course, you keep it far enough so it doesn't produce an actual burn, just some heating from fire. And 
experiments done in psychology demonstrate that people whose hand is heated during their sleep, in the moment when they hit the REM, the rapid eye movements, that means they start dreaming, when their brain goes in dream mode, they dream fires, they dream stuff like this is actually you have a vision and you said I've seen an angel of fire and somebody was having a lighter under your hand. So Tibetans say that is a sense perception. These are just phenomena which of course are rare, twisted, you can't see them directly, but often sense perceptions or phenomena may be mistaken for revelations or glimpses of the reality. That's why very often all these sense perception phenomena, revelations, they are not taken seriously. Many people today, this is one of the things in the New Age subculture, because in the old days, if you had a perception that, I don't know, Jesus came and told you something, the church would be extremely severe towards you, extremely mistrustful, and in the beginning you would be taken through the devil's advocate completely. Like, first of all, there would be the suspicion that you are just having distorted sense perceptions, phenomena, and basically the whole thing is a delusion. And only if in weeks and months and years you pass the test of it, then maybe it will be ascribed that that person was a saint and that person indeed had divine vision. Actually, for example, in the Western Christianity, both of the root churches of Christianity, which are the Orthodox Eastern Church from Russia, Greece, Eastern Europe, as well as the Roman Catholic Church from the West, they both of them have the rule that nobody can be proclaimed a saint during their lifetime. Like St. Francis of Assisi was not called St. Francis during his life. He was called Francesco. He was not a saint. Even Mother Teresa, she was not called a saint or something. That means there will always be a time to validate. It's a self-protection thing because very often they realize some people can come up with some very clever visions, revelation. Some people have parapsychological powers. They can read with the tips of their fingers. They can remote view. They can have hysterical phenomena where they bleed out of their palms. They can have lots of weird phenomena. Doesn't mean anything in terms of the greater reality. And that is why this precaution is very, very active and unfortunately this precaution has been renounced at humanity always wanted to improvise on things. That's why even in the time of Jesus, Judaism was very wary because in Judaism before Jesus, there had been lots of schizophrenic people who said, listen, O Israel, the God talks to you. And then somebody will come with a baseball bat and say, boom, shut up. Back to the mental hospital where you belong. Because they were not prophets. They were crazy people. There are so many people. Try to think. In, I think in 1995 I read an article which said that in 1995, it's much worse today, but in 1995 in California alone, 
there were registered five new religions every week. No, like the whole humanity produced one every 500 years, and in LA you've got five per week in 1995. What does this prove? This proof that people have gone bonkers. Why? Because there is no more inquisition. We decry the inquisition today, but actually the world of mysticism has always been in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, by phantasmagoric crazy people with rich imagination that came and started invented, inventing things. If you would know, if you'd read history, how many people wrote incredibly fake and crazy spiritual texts. Go into Sanskritology and you see there is a plethora of fake Upanishads written by Tom, Dick and Harry, like some phantasmagoric person, stayed down in a place and, said, and came up and took two weeks and wrote some Upanishad where they said some crazy stuff. And then they said, it's a terton, it comes from Padmasambhava, I have unearthed it from a rock in the Himalayas, and look, here is a 10,000 year old spiritual text. The world is full of these people. Today it's happening more than ever, but it has happened all along history. And that's why Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity and everybody, they needed a sort of censorship commission, which would say, there appeared another schizophrenic with a so-called text, you know, those people, the texts had to be burned and the people had to be sent to the mental hospital where they came from, because otherwise it would get crazy. There are so many people, especially in the conspiracy field, in the mystery field, people invent that they have a letter from Nicholas Roerich, that they have the secret diary of the Admiral Bayard, that they have this out there it's full that there are the prophecies of Mother Shipton and all sorts of stuff. And then when linguists and scientists analyze them, it's fake. It's fake to the bone. And you can catch it because the language is not the same. The ink is not proper. The paper is not proper. Any forensic investigation demonstrates what hoaxes these were. Today, this, this literature in Christianity, for example, and it is so praised today, which is ridiculous, it is called apocryphal literature, which means there is a gospel of Peter. Why isn't it in the Bible? It isn't in the Bible because the people who analyzed this literature in the fourth century said this gospel of Peter is not written by Peter, it's written by some phantasmagoric person in the second century who then pretended that they dug it from some old pot and they presented it like being a secret gospel written by Peter and so on. The world is full of this stuff. Today people don't do this, but they, chan they channel spirits, warriors, spaceships, aliens, gods, everything, and they come up with crap. The world is full of incredible crap. Really, when people are going into spirituality, you sometimes think like if we should not reinvent the Inquisition or something similar because the world is drowning into madness. Everybody who gets some mental diarrhea creates something, shits something on a piece of paper and creates something. They, people see a science fiction movie like Stargate 
and then they go to the next alternative fair in town and you find some crazy people having built a stargate. And you tell them, guys, this is just a science fiction which appeared last year. Why didn't you have a copper wire, radionic, something which you pretend does this and that? Why didn't you come with it five years ago? That would have been real creativity. Now a science fiction, a Hollywood science fiction appeared on the market and then three months later you've got a Stargate which puts you in telepathic contact with a player this, and which actually is just a piece of metal with no effect whatsoever. But if you have a strong faith and you are a fanatic, you can make yourself believe anything anyway. No, like this is what's happening in the new age. A lot of crazy people are coming up with a lot of shit. And this shit 500 years from now, nobody will have heard from it. It will not withstand the, text of, the test of time. It will go under the sand of time. Such things have been invented. Every time when we had very strict religions, then the crazy people did not, in, you know, like in the medieval times in Europe, there would have been no man and woman who would have said, uh, Jesus came to me and dictated to me a fifth gospel. Because you would be put in a straitjacket or thrown into the fire. So people were very wary about coming up with shit like this. And even when people had some revelation, they were zipping it because they were afraid. The fear was keeping the decency to a certain level. But then as soon as these plugs disappear, people started coming up. There's a tragedy sometimes in the yoga tradition, in the tantric tradition, how many people wrote crap and which is very difficult to discern. When you ask Indologists and Sanskritologists, they know there is a lot of garbage literature among the real texts of yoga, because at least in India, there was no inquisition. There was no censorship thing, and people wrote whatever they wanted. There are tantric texts which say one thing, and then some idiot writes another so-called tantric text, which is supposed to be Shastra, but it's not Shastra, it's written by some Tom, Dick and Harry in the 16th century, and which gives completely alienated information. Sometimes I read texts which today the scholarship publishes many of those, although they are never of any use because they are garbage, and you read some of those texts and you realize they are written by a guy that had a sub-mediocre intelligence and probably smoked a lot of hash at the same time. And then they started babbling on a banana leaf, writing some crap. And that thing is supposed to be some traditional text. It's not. It should go in the fire. It's just an expression of human creativity and imagination at the best. But it has nothing to do with the Shastras or with traditional literature. That's why, remember that in spirituality, there is always, like we had here, they come all the time in the last five six, eight years, you know, ever since people know there are people interested in spirituality in Agama. And then they start coming. We got people who claim to be from Shambhala, to belong to secret Swami brotherhoods from India, who are uh, capable to see your previous lives and mm, give you salvation and I don't know what. It's like a lot of them. The world is full. This is the new age thing that in a decent society, these people would have been said, shut up, go away. You know, it's like you are mentally handicapped. Take care. You need, you need lots of care. It's not, this is not tradition or anything scientific, rational. It doesn't fit. It doesn't dovetail with anything. 
Where did you come up with this? No, but today, because of the so-called tolerance of the modern times, unfortunately, you have to be wary a lot. And people take sense perceptions or phenomena mistaken for revelations or glimpses of the reality. It has been demonstrated that if you have gas in your stomach, if you are producing lots of abdominal gas, which will be later eliminated either as burping or as flatulence, if you sleep on a side of your body and your digestion is very bad and it produces gas, then you have certain kinds of dreams and visions. Like you can have dreams and visions because you have gas in your bowels, because your heart is beating badly, because your liver is not functioning in some way, because you have too much magnesium or too little magnesium, because you've eaten something or you didn't eat something, and then you start having visions. And that doesn't mean anything in itself. It is sometimes I have been surprised of how much attachment people have to their own visions. Like their own visions are sacred. You know, you shouldn't tell to anybody your vision is worth shit. Doesn't mean anything. You just had gas in your bowels. That's what all your vision is about. No, you know, like people would kill you for, especially the people who are the fanatic typology, you are like disappointing them for life because they had a vision in which left uh, yin is on the right side and yang is on the left side. And then you can tell them people are crazy, you know, it's like there is a whole tradition. No, no, it has changed because uh, 2,000 years ago, I, I met really people saying this, the magnetic poles of the earth change and the north is south and the south is north and therefore the polarity is the other way around. It's like people, we don't know if we should give you a beating or a cold shower or a straight jacket. I don't know what can make you wake up from this delirium. But people take their visions very seriously. In all the spiritual traditions you are taught the contrary. Your visions mean nothing but just material phenomena of your mind. And maybe you just inhale too much CO2 or maybe you have a poor liver or something and your vision doesn't mean anything. It's the product of some psychophysiological mechanism and therefore you can't take it that seriously. It's not in itself having any metaphysical value. Remember, this is very important to have this, to be cool about things. Therefore, the resemblance was sense perceptions or phenomena may be mistaken for revelations or glimpses of reality. People say, I've seen God, I've had a Satori, I've had some nirvana. And somebody says, how can you be sure? You know, it's like, what, what if it is just some material phenomenon? That's why you need a tradition. That's why you need a teacher. Because all this is a labyrinth. And then you proclaim yourself, oh, I've had this and I've had that. But are you sure you are not raving because of something very, very different, of something which is very material on the other hand? Five, that is very significant evolutionary now because it says a mere glimpse of the reality with a capital R, which means a state of realization, may be mistaken for complete realization. That's the equivalent of the proverb which says you don't make spring with one flower. Let's say one of you does yoga. Good. 
you are steering away from all the other traps and visions and childish phantasmagoric things and one day with great effort and with practice and with grace you are just breaking through and you are enjoying and you are having five minutes of a state of cosmic consciousness or samadhi. Tibetan yoga says chill out. You didn't reach complete spiritual realization because you had five minutes of samadhi. Five minutes of samadhi is a flower. doesn't make spring. It's far from that. There are people who think, and sometimes this is coming for a variety of reasons, who are privileged at some point with some spiritual state, and then they think they have reached realization. This was the tragedy of the hippies. Timothy Leary and the guys, they did readings from the Bardo Todol, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and some had the vision of the clear light being on LSD, so they were on LSD and they had a sort of state of samadhi, and then they thought that they were enlightened and they had a mission to enlighten the whole world. And since they got it through LSD, they simply proposed that LSD should be put in the drinking water in all the cities, so that everybody can have a miraculous awakening and uh, see what they saw. And they didn't realize that many, many people taking LSD, they don't get anything and they have just horrible trips and they waste their lives and some of them even have accidents and negative outcomes out of it. And therefore, this is it. This is a very important thing which keeps modesty because it says a mere glimpse of reality may be mistaken for complete realization. One of the factors which is very important here is humility, humbleness. People that are humble would never say, oh, I've seen it, I've seen it, okay, now I have it. Wait a second, that was a flower. Flower doesn't make spring. But I have seen and I have been shocked in some communities, in some ethnic groups. It was one of my shocks when I lived in India to see people who were having just glimpses and pieces of it and then they would puff themselves up so full of importance, like I've seen that, okay, finish, yeah, right, now it's clear, right, I've done it, and wait a second, you know, just if you had a glimpse of reality, that doesn't mean a complete spiritual realization. By far, Ramakrishna had a big glimpse of reality when he fell in his first samadhi in front of the statue of Kali in the temple and he spent the whole night fallen on the floor in samadhi and then his biographer says exacerbated by this first vision the young Ramakrishna went then into a delirious period he tried constantly to keep in touch with this like Ramakrishna after he had a night of ecstasy with Kali that's when he actually started really seriously. Like, okay, if I broke through once, let's do it again and again and again and again and again because it's not over. It's clearly that it's not over. There is way to go. That is why this is unfortunately people that are very arrogant and puffed up and whom their guru did not teach humility, they would always jump ahead and say, yeah, yeah, right, it's in the box, I got it, right. And other people, even after that, I've known people that had a lifetime of ecstatic states, and they still said, I'm nobody, I'm stupid, I'm small, 
who am I to say this? No, it's like they kept an exaggerated modesty when they actually were into spiritual realization and they preferred to stay on the side of, mode on the side of modesty and to say, you know, like, let's not get puffed up, let's not say anything too big about this. It's a very, very important thing. And in modern spirituality, many people have lost this measure, and that's why you will find many people who err in this resemblance. A mere glimpse of the reality may be mistaken for complete realization. <coughs> Six. Those who outwardly profess but do not practice a spiritual path may be mistaken for true devotees. Somebody just talks, but they do not do. Somebody talks about, I don't know, sexual continence, but they do not practice it. Then they can be mistaken for true devotees. Unfortunately, it happens, even with famous people. I do not want to, you know, point fingers at anybody, but for example, in the, today when you go into the West, if you say Tantra, 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 more than 50% of what is done as Tantra in the different Western countries is followers of the so-called, of the man who called himself in the end Osho. But the man who called himself Osho preached a lot about Tantra, and yet the people who were the women who were with him intimately, they, they told the story that he was not practicing Tantra, that he was not even capable of the elementary sexual continence. And then, unfortunately, you can say somebody is professing something, somebody is preaching something outwardly, but does not practice it. To be able to speak about meditation, but not to be able to practice meditation, that is not the right thing. If you cannot practice meditation, then please do not preach meditation. It is not fair. Those who outwardly profess but do not practice a spiritual path may be mistaken for true devotees. There are so many people, lamas, gurus, swamis. Today you don't even need to be one of those. Westerners, self-enlightened masters. Like, I remember somebody was going to Pune, the Osho hub there, and they told me in Pune there are at least self-enlightened masters that gravitate around the Osho ashram, and they give satsangs, and like people have no humility. Satsang is something in India, the satsang is called by Swami Shivananda, the translation of it, is company of the wise, company of the sages. The satsang is given by gurus of ashrams and schools. It is given by some people that have already a degree of spiritual realization. There came a couple of dudes in the islands, and then I heard from my pupils, no, no, we don't go tonight to the bhajan, because there is this guy who gives satsang. I said, interesting, there is somebody in Kopangan that gives satsang. To, to give satsang, you need to be like Swami Shivananda. Who is like Swami Shivananda in this island and gives satsang besides the fact that we have the satsangs here? It's like, it's not that I'm irritated that somebody else gives satsang. Maybe I should also go to someone else's satsang if they give a satsang. If there is indeed a satsang, that's a rare event. 
why would people have the cheek to call some interviews or some public gatherings to call it satsang? This is the lack of humility. This is the, it's a different thing when you do it in a school where there are hundreds of people coming and things are very clear about some things and there is a flow and it's another thing to go around and say I give satsang. Somebody went to Pune, they said it's at least 10 people around the Osho ashram which give satsang. At least Osho Rajneesh, although he may have had his own inconsistencies, was considered by most people a spiritual genius, a brilliant spiritualist. He indeed had some, realize, some accomplishments in spirituality which were undeniable that he was giving satsang. That's fine that the Dalai Lama gives satsang. People say, yeah, but maybe Dalai Lama is enlightened. Maybe Dalai Lama is just a politician and he's not really enlightened. Still, he is the Dalai Lama. This is the 14th Dalai Lama. It's a symbol for a whole generation of spiritualists on this planet. You know, Dalai Lama gives satsang. It's satsang. The Karmapa of the Kargyutpas gives satsang. It's satsang because for God's sake, that's somebody, you know. But like this, that people go around and they proclaim themselves to be self-enlightened persons and 20 years later you find themselves in a totally other ridiculous place and so on. That's exactly where the Kali Yuga is coming from. From this mix-up, from these values which are made ridiculous, you know. People ask me, Swami, do you give sannyasa? Are you making some of the people swamis and so on? But there is a very serious thing in the sannyasa because when you take the sannyasa, you take a vow to consecrate the rest of your life to spirituality. So when you do that, you don't get married, you don't get married, you don't open a business, you don't do, there are some rules of it. It is ridiculous to see that somebody took a sannyasa and became a swami when they are 20 or 30, and when they are 50, they are just running a business with sausages. You know, it's like, then they should have shot themselves before they opened that business, because they are mocking the whole institution of sannyasa by basically showing sannyasa is a shit. You do it or you don't do it, and you have a whim, and then you take it. That's why the great gurus are very cautious to whom they give such things. And if you will go in a Christian monastery as a woman, as a man, to become a nun or a monk, first one year you are on observation, you are on probation. Well, they will see, do you talk too much? Do you move too much? Are you too horny sexually? What are your character? They will observe you and see what are your flaws. And then after that, you don't become a monk or a nun. You become a novice for three years, for five years. You are chaperoned every day and you are under extremely heavy discipline, more than the regular monks and nuns, so that they can see if indeed you have aspiration. If you don't crack under the pressure, if you are the real thing. And guess what? Many, many people crack under the pressure. There are people, I have known people that have been pre-monks or nuns for eight years, and then they broke, they ran squealing. Because, and because the people who give those titles, they want to make sure, let's not give that title to somebody who will be ridiculous 10 years from now and will make the whole institution to be look ridiculous just because it has fallen in the hands of some inappropriate people. That's exactly what we're talking about. Those who outwardly profess but do not practice a spiritual path may be mistaken for true devotees. You talk about Kundalini, rise your Kundalini. 
have some Kundalini phenomena. You talk about Kashmiri Shaivism, be able to give initiations in Kashmiri Shaivism. I have seen people pretending to give uh, Shaktipat, Grace, Kundalini, Kashmiri Shaivism and so on, and they were, as far as I could see, imposters. They were not people who were not able to do one single phenomenon from all the range of phenomena which they were professing, but they had the cheek, they had the incredible cheek to profess, to preach something which was not there. That is why it is important, this is, the Tibetans are aware of these pitfalls, even in the microcosm of Tibetan Buddhism itself, so many such things have happened and so much imposture, hypocrisy, madness and other things have happened. Seven, another merciless one. Slaves of passion may be mistaken for masters of yoga who have liberated themselves from all conventional laws. Because sometimes the masters of yoga in Tibet, for example, they practice divine madness, such as Drukpa Kunle, the divine madman, as he was nicknamed, the Bhutanese yogi who lived in Tibet and who is legendary until today. And these people were practicing something which resembled with the jester of the king in the West, that many royal courts, the king had a jester, a clown, and he was telling words which were ridiculous, provocative, insulting, humoristic, but very often they expressed the painful truth. Exactly like that child who said, the emperor has no clothes. That child is the Hans Christian Andersen equivalent of the king's jester. That was the true function of the king's jester, to bring puffed up people, and even the king himself could be a target, to bring them down, to bring them with the feet on the earth. Whenever they were starting to fly too high, the king's jester would make a cruel joke. And that cruel joke will show to everybody how pompous, how phantasmagoric, how ridiculous the whole thing has become, that there is no common sense anymore. The jester of the king was a sort of the voice of the earth, the voice of the common people, you know. Like the king can pretend that he's dressed in golden clothes as much as he wants, but a child will say the emperor is naked. And that's actually the truth, and it's like a cold shower. Exactly in the same way, Tibetan yoga says the slaves of passion may be mistaken for masters of yoga who have liberated themselves from all conventional laws. Like some people will say, because I am enlightened, I can do this or that. It's true that sometimes spiritual teachers did not stop into some minor considerations, like Jesus was not very respectful of the Sabbath day. Because Jesus said, I am God. There is no Sabbath. For me, every day is Sabbath because I am walking with God every day because I am God, actually. So there is no Sabbath for Jesus. And then Jesus said, you know, please make an exception for me and my disciples. We don't really go for the Sabbath because we are fanatics who think about God every day. And for us, every day is Sabbath. So we don't need a special Sabbath. But Jesus did not say that regular people should not hold the Sabbath, which means one day out of seven consecrated to your divinity, consecrated to the divine thing. 
Jesus actually said, for normal people, this is good. This is a rule which does not apply to me and mine. And now, of course, we can say, was Jesus a slave of passion who appeared as free from all social conventions and actually he was wrong? Because some, that's what some people said. Some people said Jesus has a devil. He is possessed by the devil and he is a, he is a blasphemer. And he is just, uh, you know, a man who is possessed by some law. He's not right to do that. Some people doubted it, even in the case of one like Jesus. And therefore, it is always possible to doubt. And yes, great masters in spirituality, a Milarepa, a Jesus, a Rumi, a Ramakrishna, like we are talking about people of the first caliber in spirituality. We are talking about the people who are, who are in the who's who of every spirituality. We are talking about people who are in the top ten of their spirituality, of their lineages and traditions. Sometimes such people, they took some liberties. No, like in Christianity you have the expression that you are a God-fearing person. And it is even enjoined, you know, that you should always have a feeling of awe and a sort of a fear in front of God. Like, don't get cheeky in front of God. You should always have this humbleness and be rather overcautious instead of like, yeah, me, sure, now, pam, pam. Be a bit humble, heavily, because you don't know. God is like an elephant and you are like an ant. It can crush you out of a wrong move no, at any time, you know. Don't be so confident that you have gained something and now you can or you... You should exert some sort of humbleness of the sort. And yet there have been Christian saints that have gone beyond that, no? Like, for example, St. John Cassian, one of the fathers of the desert. He said, I no longer fear God. Because now I love God. Yeah, but you have to be John Cassian for a normal ignorant person. The force which drives them partly in their life is fear. That's why the epithet is, look at John. John is a God-fearing man and that is a lord. It's a praise to be a God-fearing person. It means you'll be something who will not lie too much, who will not cheat too much, who will not kill too much, who will not because you are a God-fearing person. And you have, there is a harness which will keep you from stepping over some limits. It was actually a praise word, a, a word of praise. John Cassian says, I'm not a God-fearing man because I have reached beyond that. Not everybody has reached where John Cassian has lived, where he says, for me, there's no need of fear of God because now I truly, indeed, with the love of Christ, I love God. Very few people have the cheek and the level of consciousness to say such things. And that is why what I want to say, yes, a Krishna, a Jesus, a Buddha, and others, they do bend the rules. They come with new revelations. They have the right to bend some rules. And sometimes this is taken by some people like a license to go as far as you want. For example, in India, Kepha Baba, one of great Babas, Tantric Baba in some Kumbha Mela, in the Kumbha Mela where the Hindus are really orthodox in a Hindu way and therefore there is no alcoholic beverage because alcohol is prohibited in very orthodox Hinduism. Kepa Baba comes and in front of the crowd somebody brings him a jar full of 
wine, which is taboo, it's like you shouldn't touch it, and Kepa Baba in front of the Orthodox thousands of people or crowds and some sympathizers who are watching him, takes the wine and drinks it in front of the stupefied crowd. And he drinks like two liters of wine, he puts the pitcher down, he puts his hands and legs in meditation, and then he goes in Samadhi. So now we can apply this. Either Kepha Baba is a slave of passion that can be mistaken for being a master of yoga, who have liberated themselves from all conventional laws, and then if Kepha Baba drinks or doesn't drink, it's irrelevant really, because if he drinks, he can go in Samadhi. If he doesn't drink, he can go in Samadhi. So what difference will it make? But then there are some people who can't do what Kepa Baba did, and they also pretend themselves to be grand masters of yoga who have liberated themselves from all conventional laws. I have encountered yoga teachers who are willing to break lots of rules, and some of them, it could be seen clearly, that they could not be broken. That sometimes for a purpose or something you can give one exception or other. You know, it's like there is somebody who needs a special medication or needs something and you can advise them something which is not really kosher, some non-orthodox thing, because we, have, we can be creative. But it's another thing when you do things within some of the limits of spirituality and it's another thing when people step over certain limits that's why here we can give lots of examples and unfortunately the modern world is filled up with crookedness and so-called gurus that have tumbled off their pedestals and because of this the examples could be endless we could spend the whole evening talking about slaves of passion that have been mistaken for masters of yoga who have liberated themselves from all conventional laws. And funny, they always make case of that, like they always resort to that. Okay, there can be a yoga master, a man or a woman, that inwardly inside is liberated from all conventional laws. And yet, on the outside, they don't do anything exceptional. They don't need to show that they are liberated from conventional laws. On the outside, they behave. They keep a public face and they don't need to provoke about that. They don't need to rub it in the face of anybody. Maybe in an emergency, they would step over the red line and then you would see that that person is really exceptional in some way or another. But the fact that some people internally, they have broken all the laws, like you know, Paramahamsa Yogananda, or I don't know, Swami Shivananda, or others and others, they, have been they did behave in wonderful spiritual ways. They did not need to say, ah, but because I'm Swami Shivananda, I have gone beyond all the conventional laws, and therefore I can... Uh, you know, like in India, one like Swami Shivananda would be inconceivably that such a man would not be a vegetarian. And then Swami Shivananda would say, for me it doesn't matter anymore, dears. I have reached the state of Samadhi, I am a great guru, I am enlightened, I have gone beyond conventional laws. I can bring life to the fishes just by clicking my fingers. I am beyond this problem with vegetarian or non-vegetarian. 
maybe Shivananda was like at that level, but he didn't do it. He didn't need to rub it in the face of anybody. He didn't need to be a provoker. He didn't need just to be sh show off of any kind. He didn't have any exhibitionism about these things. He behaved. He stuck to his traditional ways of being. And even if he was very, very liberated internally, maybe he showed it to three of his most close disciples, but he did not need to show it to the world. That is why there is a limit here, and sometimes we also get worried in spirituality, where you see how many people use this article from the constitution of yoga, so to speak, where they say, well, it doesn't apply to me. I can do whatever I want and so on. Sometimes it's true, really. It was true for Krishna. It was true for Rumi. It was true for Milarepa. Many of these people did things which others didn't do before them, and some of them even surprising. But most of it was in exceptional circumstances that changed the history. They brought forth a new creativity in humanity. It was things like Buddha changed so many things, even the caste system of the Hindus and others, but it was simply because Buddha made history, and history proved him right. Like Buddha was the right kind of person who did the right kind of thing, and history confirmed him. While there are many people who do gratuitous things like this in the name of a so-called transgression, that they transgress, they have transcended rules and regulations, and as the text says here, conventional laws, and actually they are not at that level. This is again a product of, of not only ignorance, I said, and that's true, but it is a product of arrogance and vanity. People who don't have humility, people who immediately want to push themselves at a level, and uh, it can be seen, and that's a resemblance. Eight, I think we are going to manage to finish them tonight because there are three left. Let's see how much comments they uh, bring forth, each one of them. The eighth resemblance out of ten, actions performed in the interest of self may be mistakenly regarded as being altruistic. There are people who do things just for themselves. And some people say, how selfless. Like, for example, you can always question, was Mother Teresa a selfish person when she did that for the children? Maybe she felt useless. Maybe she felt a loser. And that was giving her a meaning in her life. And therefore, she was not feeding the children for the children. She was feeding the children for her. Because that allowed her to have an NGO. That allowed her to get donations. That allowed her to be taken into account by the church. That allowed to be supported, to be sponsored. Eventually, Mother Teresa was throning on a big organization, and she had lots of people under her. So you can always question, did Mother Teresa do what she did truly as an altruistic action? Or was it just feeding herself, feeding her own ego, and basically bringing herself in a position where things... It's reasonable. It is allowed to question such a thing. And that's why, and people say, so Swami, how would you know? You would know from the rest of the life of the person. It will show somewhere. It would shine through somewhere 
when some people are playing a hypocrite agenda somewhere. And as Franklin, I think, or Lincoln said, you can cheat some people for the whole, whole lifetime. You can cheat everybody for a short time, but you cannot cheat everybody for the whole time, for a lifetime. Like somewhere it will crack. These people that are having a sort of agenda like this, you will see it at some point. Very nobody who has this can live a lifetime in which indeed they do the right thing and they go. That's why Jesus says, when they ask Jesus and they say, how are we going to recognize the imposters? And Jesus says, any tree is known by its fruits. That means somebody can profess and for 10 years do something and have a very holy image or do this and that. And then after 30 years, after 40 years, after 50 years, which are the fruits? Where are the fruits? Then you see the fruits. Uh, Jesus says clearly, a bad tree can never give good fruits. And the good tree will always produce good, produce good fruits. And that is why uh, here it is also a legitimate thing to ask. This is not skepticism. This is not lack of faith. It does happen. It did happen. It will happen in the future. And therefore it is legitimate to ask about yourself and about others. How honest is this thing? Actions performed in the interest of self may be mistakenly regarded as being altruistic. That's why there are, you know, even Jesus, somebody says, good teacher, say this, and Jesus immediately stops it and says, why do you call me good? How do you know I'm a good teacher? No, it's like, why do you call me good? You know, maybe I'm not good. Maybe I'm doing something for myself here. And you just say that it's good because it's a win-win. It serves you, but it's not. That's why many yogis have said, what? Well, I remember an old man who spent nine years in the wilderness doing prayer, and people were praising him of how, and he said, what? He said, I haven't done anything, but you have been in the wilderness. And he said, so what if I've been in the wilderness? I ate, I slept, I've been lazy all day long. What do you, why do you think I am a saint? Because I lived in the wilderness. He said, I've done nothing. I'm like he preferred to be exceedingly modest about his accomplishments. Like, why? You know, you just see me as being so altruistic, so selfless. I'm not. I'm just doing something for myself, and that's it. No, it's like, why do you speak about God? I speak about God because I like speaking about God. There's no altruism into it. It's just something which is good to me. There's no altruism to it. Why? pump yourself up and oh look how selfless I am look how generous I am and so on remember Tibetan yoga brings you with your feet to the ground there are so many disappointing things here actions performed in the interest of the self may be mistakenly regarded as being altruistic and today we have so many fake gurus and organizations and so on and so on and sometimes people finally get to see some of the things. Nine, deceptive methods may be mistakenly regarded as being prudent. Especially in the Chinese environment, prudence, like to be, is called sometimes wisdom. Like the Chinese philosophy is generally a fearful philosophy in which people should always have security, a secret passage to run out of your house in case the house is attacked. You know, you should always be prudent, over-cautious, people who always have some spare food for difficult times, 
people who, you know, like people who don't live recklessly. In the Chinese culture, it's a virtue. It's considered to be a virtue. But Tibetan yoga, borrowing from this, says some people say, oh, I act like this because I'm modest, I'm prudent, I am practicing modesty and prudence and therefore wisdom. And sometimes people say deceptive methods may be mistakenly regarded as being prudent. Some people are just up to deceit. And you ask them, why don't you do this? And they say, no, it's not prudent to do this. It's not, you know, it would be reckless right now to do this. Actually, there is deception in it. The intent of that action is that person is procrastinating or not doing some things. They say it's not prudent. Why don't you let me do some prudent, modest job? It's okay if indeed it's prudence and modesty. But actually some people are having an agenda and they are up to manipulation and deceit and they hide it under, you know, I can't do this because prudence and modesty requires that I don't do this. Therefore, the Tibetans don't think this happened only in Tibet. This is valid for the spirituality of the whole world. From Christians to Tibetans and from Hindus to Sufis, there have been such stories everywhere and uh, Tibetan yoga exposes the roots of all those things. And the number 10 requires no commentary. It is really the cherry on top of the cake because it sums up in one expression everything which has been said until here. The 10th resemblance simply says, imposters may be mistaken for sages. That says it all, in, especially in Kali Yuga. Like, remember, in the 15th century Tibet, it was very difficult to be an imposter and be mistaken for a sage because there was such a thing and everybody was aware and the great Tibetan lamas and all the lamaistic institution, they wouldn't allow it to happen. They would have their own Tibetan inquisition. No, they would be ready to go if somebody starts playing games. In the medieval Christianity, it was not possible for imposters to be mistaken for sages. Not, not everybody could play the game of Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila was frowned upon in the beginning. She was treated with suspicion. And eventually the Pope himself, who was a politician, not a mystic, the Pope himself proclaimed Teresa of Avila doctor in theology and they recognize that she has a link with God directly. Like, thus, in the, in the same time, if you lived a contemporary of Teresa of Avila in Spain in the 16th century and you pretended to be a sage, you would be fried. You would be exposed rather quickly because there were canons and standards and you wouldn't be able to veer. Today, under the help, under the wings of the so-called democracy, tolerance, freedom, libertarianism and other such concepts, basically everybody can do pretty much what they want as long as they don't grievously break some laws. And therefore, especially in the field of spirituality, there is this sum up of all things. Imposters can be mistaken for sages. 
I have seen in my life lots of imposters who were mistaken for sages. That's a sure thing. It happens all the time. It is up to you to find out who the imposters are and who the sages are. But remember that this is happening all the time. And I, again, I don't want to point towards anything concrete to give you a hint of this and that, but I have heard in spirituality things which were preposterous. You know, it's like there were people, I remember a guy in India who passed away, one of the ex-sages, I again won't mention who it was, and this person proclaimed not to be a big yogi, proclaimed to be an avatar, a god incarnated, and enjoyed wealth and fame and a lot of other things. And there were tons of dubious reports coming from there. But then I found the, I found the remark of a real intelligent Western person, I think American guy, who had been interviewed in one of the cases concerning this person by the FBI. And this person simply said, you know, you can always say that all the rumors, this, like we have rumors in Agama, plenty and so on, and many of them anti-Agama, and anti-many people from Agama, and so on. So rumors are rumors. You don't stop them, and they are everywhere. And somebody would say, Swami, if you believe that the rumors in Agama are unfounded and wicked, why wouldn't you believe that those rumors were unfounded and wicked? So you cannot say much from the rumors. But there was a scientist who say, this guy pretends that he is God speaking on earth, and he said the scientific and intellectual level at which his discourses are, are approximately of the seventh grade in school. Seventh school grade. What avatar are you talking about? You know, it's like at least if we'd see a person that is brilliantly intelligent or has an intuition or an insight that crosses through the worlds and through the planes of the universe, you know, then you are coming like you have people who claim themselves to be, I don't know what, sages, and when they are producing a discourse or writing something or making an action or coming with a spiritual insight, it's pathetic. It's, it's, it's kindergarten, really. There you can see the tree. That's why Jesus was right. The tree shall be known by its fruits. I knew a yoga teacher who went rogue, who went psychically disturbed and he was giving a technique for I don't know what spiritual emancipation where the element the basic practical element was this that you are using a rubber string like these ones which you use for jars and you are passing a rubber string from one finger to another in a technique and so on and everybody said come on you know and he said that that was a revelation for the first time given on the face of this earth it's like right no, if that's what you can come up with a revelation in the 21st century, that you do some prayer moving a rubber string from one finger to the next, then we are at the level of kindergarten, really. No? And therefore, it means that God has gone pretty dull lately, because all the people that talk in the name of God, they manage to produce ridiculous stuff, ridiculous stuff, like intellectually bankrupt stuff, and even mystically and metaphysically bankrupt stuff. And that, like when you read Rumi, Rumi in the 12th century, 
He describes the structure of the solar systems and galaxies. Rumi in the 12th century describes the structure of the atom without having a scientific education. Omar Khayyam was a great mathematician and astronomer. When you read Omar Khayyam, you get goosebumps what that man is writing. When you read Ibn Arabi or other metaphysicians, when you read Meister Eckhart, even today you fall on your back what those people wrote in the 13th century. Or, you know, it's like you can see that there is an enlightened person who shines with something which is greater than nature, bigger than nature. Then you have somebody who says, I'm an avatar and can write or produce something at the level of the seventh grade of primary school. It's like, you know, it's like, then God has made a fool of himself by promoting. Why didn't the Spirit of God enter itself into the body of somebody more articulate, more intelligent, more since God could have done it in all the ways? Why choose such an exponent of the divine message? When Abhinava Gupta flourished in India, the whole India recognized this man is so great, he is an avatar of Shiva. When Shankaracharya flourished in India, he was less than 30 years old. He was a young boy. And everybody said, this man is great. Like what Shankaracharya produced is way beyond what his contemporaries were able to fathom, you know? That's why I'm saying uh, this is a sadly true statement, the last of the ten resemblances, and it concludes by saying these are the ten resemblances wherein one may err. You have to remember them because spirituality is not easy. Spirituality is going through very uncharted territory. There are people who have been impostures in science. There have been so many fake scientists who claim that they discovered a virus, a new law of physics, a new kind of combustion engine, and so on. Like science, science, which you wouldn't believe, science is full of hoaxes and hysterics and crazy people who believe, you know. Like even science is full of mentally sick people who come up and they think they have done something. Literature, society, full of con arts and this. There are people, there is a guy who sold the Eiffel Tower twice. He sold the Eiffel Tower. Can you believe that somebody would even conceive of buying the Eiffel Tower from some person on a street? Like somebody sold the Eiffel Tower twice. So, I mean, that you would say, come on, people don't part with their money so easy. If this guy sold the Eiffel Tower for $100,000, who the heck gives a hundred? You have to be really stupid after you made $100,000 to part with them to buy the Eiffel Tower. Like you have to be an idiot. So obviously the person who bought the Eiffel Tower was not quite a complete idiot. But the con man must have been diabolically skillful to sell the Eiffel Tower to some credulous person who would put money into it not just words and promises, hard cash. And he sold it twice. He found two fools to sell it until he got caught. That's why I say if there are con men in selling the Eiffel Tower, if there are con men in science and others, how wouldn't there be con and con acts, con men and con acts in spirituality? When spirituality is so difficult to prove, 
everybody can state pretty much everything what they want and things are so slippery and so discreet spirituality is the gold mine for some people because they realize that if you have the cheek you can get away with everything I'm telling you I've seen even in my life I've seen people both around Agama and elsewhere through the world where I was I've seen people with an incredible cheek, complete, complete imposters, and they were having a cheek bigger, like they were, they would say things which Shivananda didn't dare to say. They would make statements which Ramakrishna had the common sense of not doing, and those people would do absolutely preposterous statements. I, I was feeling myself embarrassed and ashamed just being in the presence of those people and listening to the enormities that they could produce and asking myself, how doesn't the earth open, gaps open and swallow them right now, you know? It's so pathetic, so embarrassing that somebody can push at those levels. That's the way it is and Tibetan yoga is aware of it and that's why Tibetan yoga has given you the gift of the ten resemblances wherein one may err. Spirituality is not free of imposture. Spirituality, by far from that. Remember, people can try to cheat in science, which is like foolproof. People cheat in science. People cheat, again, selling the Eiffel Tower. And in spirituality, in spirituality, people are selling the Eiffel Tower every day, believe me. There are Eiffel Towers being sold every day in spirituality because people are credulous and some people are having incredible cheek. That's why in spirituality, you should use a healthy dose of questioning, seeing for yourself. I always, people say, oh, Swami, but why? No, maybe Agama, I have doubts. And I tell them, take a deadline, take a deadline for five years, go around, investigate, study, make up your mind. You don't have to believe me. See what's around, see what's happening. Go, spend your time, money, energy, investigate. Don't, like, it's like somebody who sticks, stuck their head into Agama and they think this is it. Have you seen something else? Have you tried something else? See, then you are going to maybe have a more clear opinion. Yes. In Agama, that is the style of the school that generally, that's coming from perhaps my Virgo temperament and other things, that we don't push the stakes. Like they are happening, incredible things are happening in Agama. And if you are going to ask and to see the testimonials of some people and ask some people, they have incredible words of praise. And yet, we don't like to bring them in front and to boast and to brag precisely because of this there is a lot of that and imposture can be taken for wisdom really that's why let it be settled in an age like this where even the spirituality is the object of so much confusion then it's better to keep a certain level of decency and just let things flow eventually the tree is known by the fruits the people who have the karma for it will find whatever they have to find. Slowly, slowly, like St. Francis of Assisi said, if you want your dream to be, take your time, go slowly, 
and things will clarify. No flashy, impressive things, which most of the time are wrong. It's true. Jesus did have a flashy, meteoric existence. But that was somebody who obviously changed the face of the earth for thousands of years. And nobody, even, the, even those that despise Jesus, they don't have any doubt that he still must have been a very exceptional person to have done what he has done. Because no regular person does that kind of stuff. Anyway, enough for tonight. We have gone through the ten resemblances which create spiritual fake appearance, wherein one may err, as the text says. Let us now interiorize ourselves for a couple of minutes for finding the centering, the centeredness. And after that, let us part for tonight. Even next week, although there will be a retreat happening in the school at the same time, the satsang will continue. It is the tradition in the school that as long as I am here, either there is a retreat or something, I will continue giving the satsang because there are also people who are not physically here and they want to enjoy the weekly satsang. For many people, some of these speeches are like a spiritual lifeline. They feel in contact. So that's why as long as I am here, except when I am myself running some retreat or workshop, I'm doing the satsang for everyone. Let us now go into centeredness, into interiorization, into the spiritual center to settle down, to connect such knowledge with the self, with the higher self. And that will do for tonight. Namaste to all of you. And we'll meet at the next satsang.